We on? We are on, okay. Well, good morning, church. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so if before we get started, I want to draw your attention left and right. If you have any questions with the message, you're encouraged to text them in. At the end, myself and other pastors will do our best to answer them here at the end at the service. So we're Almost done. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. I think we're a couple months in, and we're finally rounding the corner, and there's light at the end of the tunnel. we got four more weeks of the Sermon on the Mount, finishing up chapter 7. We're moving on from dealing with personal temptation, struggles that we face personally, to dealing with interpersonal temptation, struggles that we face between one another. This morning, we're going to be dealing with a text that seems to be quoted most by unbelievers. And really most by people that seem to be doing something wrong. They don't want to be accused of it. The judge not passage, right? This morning we're going to see what Jesus really means by that. And it's not that we cannot make any moral judgments whatsoever, but what Jesus is railing against is hypocritical judging. Over the course of my wife and I's marriage, I don't know if we have any Hallmark movie fans, like two, okay, and one of them's up here. Um, so my wife and I love Hallmark movies, we love our murder mystery shows, and when I think of hypocritical judging, I think of like the small town pastor who's preaching behind the pulpit on sin and yet is like sneaking around his congregation in, in this secret lifestyle. I also think about, about this guy that we probably all have in our family who seems to think that Washington is just so dumb and that he has the final answers for everything into these complex problems like our, our poverty, uh, the budget crisis in this nation. He makes it sound so easy and yet he can't even keep his own budget or keep his own job. I think if we're going to be honest here, we all share in this habit of hypocritically judging others. All of us tend to notice and get frustrated when our, our wives forget to run that errand while we forget to clean the bathroom, right? Or maybe we can't fathom how some people can fall into a certain public sinful lifestyle while we're committing the same types of sin in private. See, it is baseball season here, and all of us tend to be umpires at heart, where we like to call balls and strikes on one another instead of ourselves. Am I right? Okay, I'm getting two head nods. Good enough for me. This morning, Jesus is going to show us what inappropriate judging looks like, and we're also going to see what needs to happen in our lives before we can appropriately judge others. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Me reading verses 1 through 6. But before we get started this morning, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, seeking wisdom. Father, we want to prepare our hearts in reverence and in submission to the very words of God, the Word of God. Pray that we would submit to it, Father God, that you would give us grace to convict us grace to see Jesus as the one who has changed us and is changing us. Pray, God, for just wisdom and illumination this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6 says, this is Jesus speaking here, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. Do not get dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So if you notice the way Jesus teaches, a lot of times he'll start off with a principle, a main point, and then he'll amplify that principle large upon it, and then he'll give an illustration. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here. First he gives the principle, verse 1. We see, judge not, lest you be judged. Okay, this verse alone should rattle us, right? We don't want to judge because we don't want to be judged by God. But let's see what exactly Jesus means by this. He amplifies and explains this in verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So the, the way you judge others, God will in turn judge you the same way. Again, another sobering verse here. And then he gives his illustration, verses 3 through 5. So he's basically saying, you're, you're looking at this man who has a splinter in his own eye, but you don't even notice the, the, the log that is coming out of your own eye. Jesus is giving an intentional overstatement to make a solid point here, that God despises hypocritical judging. I don't believe that Jesus is talking about not making any moral judgments whatsoever, because I think we can come to that conclusion even within this passage, but also within the light of the rest of God's word. So let's look at verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. Thank you, Phil. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is one of these verses that just kind of scratches your head here. So what Jesus seems to be saying here is, yes, Christ followers must be merciful. We must be slow to judge forgiving, but we should also wisely judge the character of those we are sharing the message of the kingdom of, or, or the gospel with. And I say that because pearls before pigs, another part of the gospel, Jesus talks about the, the pearl of great price is the message of the kingdom. And, and pigs, Jesus is not saying that we can call people pigs and swine. These are just terms for unbelievers. So what happens when we're sharing the gospel with people that just keep on, we keep on running into offense and we're not really getting anywhere? It seems like our words are becoming futile, and it would make more sense for us, instead of stopping there, to go ahead and move on to share the gospel with someone else. I'm not saying that Jesus is saying to give up on anyone or stop praying for their salvation. But again, there comes a time when our words seem futile. Let me give you an example of that. A few years ago, I used to spend almost every single week of mine meeting with my brother, and for hours... 
I would pour my heart out for him, just sharing the gospel, going through every single argument I knew with the proof of Christ, with the validity of the New Testament. He would just love to debate me. And then he would come up with all these like crazy conspiracy theories that were just way crazier than the, than the thought of, of God taking on flesh and becoming man, dying on the cross for our sins. Came a point where I just realized that, hey, I'm spending so many hours sharing the gospel with this guy. My time is probably spent sharing the gospel with other people. Doesn't mean I stopped praying for him and asked that the God would, would soften his heart so that he would be able to receive the message. But again, our time is probably better spent elsewhere when we're running into offense again and again and again. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's my point also with this. Don't we have to make a moral judgment on whom we perceive to be the dogs or the pigs? Right, so it's ruling out what Jesus is saying, that we can't make moral judgments at all like a lot of unbelievers often miss, often quote this passage to say. The church, here's the key. In order to judge rightly so that we can take out the plank of our own eyes and see clearly the speck in our, in our brother's and sister's eyes, we need to understand who we are. We need to remember what Christ has done for us, and we need to, to remind ourselves how God sees others. So let's start with our first principle this morning. In order for us to not judge hypocritically, we must remember who we are. That's a, a mouthful, I know. So the first step in removing the plank in our eyes is to remember who we are. And who are we? We are in desperate need of the cross. Again, Jesus is saying these words in this sermon in the context of perhaps many religious elite listening to, to him at this time, that the Pharisees who were the epitome of self-righteousness meaning they, they thought they were in right relationship with God based on what they were doing, based on their strict obedience to God's word. But here's the thing. What, here's what happens when we tend to believe that we are right with God based on our own actions. This heart of self-righteousness comes along and brings an attitude of superiority to others. Jesus is responding here to the Pharisees who have elevated themselves and have demeaned others for not living up to their own particular standards. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to consider their own sin before they started to look at the sin of others. And yet, when we all, when we're pointing out petty things in others or even major sins in others, we can tend to have a self-righteous heart that elevates ourselves and thinks that we're better than others because we don't commit blank sin. Paul also addressed this attitude in his letter to the Romans. So the context of Romans is there is a, a large population of Jews. There's a lot, large population of Gentiles. Huge cultural difference, but they're learning to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. But the Jews were struggling with self-righteousness. And so Paul, he starts off his letter in, Gen in Romans 1 addressing the sin of the Gentiles, how they were 
They rejected God's revelation and creation and were spiraling out of control. God gave them up into judgment. It's almost like Paul is anticipating the Jews' justification as they were reading the letter in this congregation. He then turns on the Jews and says, you are without excuse also. Even though you have received the law of how to live in a right relationship with God and, and, and reflect God to the nations, you have fallen short also. He says these words in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And he solidifies his point in verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, church, the great leveler of our self-righteousness and hypocritical judgment is the realization that we are sinners also in desperate need of a Savior. This is the first part, how to remove the plank in our own eyes. So continue on with the point with remembering who we are. We must remember that we are blinded with our sin. Have you ever met those people that seem to have like they look at themselves through like these rosy colored lenses. All right, they think they're, they're never wrong in anything. They're, they're the standard of everything that is right. And let me throw a wild guess here. The people that you know are like that are probably not heavily involved in being known in Christian community. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13 says, Take care. Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church, the default setting in our hearts is eventually to lead back into a hardness of heart and blindness of our own sin. That is why we need to intentionally place ourselves in community so that we can encourage one another, be encouraged to continue following after Jesus and have that person say, hey, you've got a big old log stuck in your own eye. We need that in community. So the next time you are tempted to give, out, give into an all-out assault, and your brothers or sisters speck in their eye and confront them with their sin, remember with deep humility that we are all, we all tend to be blinded by our own sin. So continue on. We need to remember that we are recipients. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. That's it, right? Okay. So cultivating an awareness that we are recipients of God erodes in us this self-righteousness that leads to hypocritical judging. Church, it is by grace, 
God's unearned favor, God's unearned kindness towards us, that he has gifted us with salvation, being made right with God. And he has gifted us by his grace, the Holy Spirit, so that we can live a life that bears fruit. We can slowly conform into the image of Jesus. It's by God's grace that he has given us brothers and sisters so that we can more accurately know ourselves. All of life that we breathe that is not under the judgment of God, which we all deserve, is by grace. Thus, it is by grace that we don't struggle with those particular sins of those who have hurt us or are hurting others. And we tend to notice the sins of unbelievers and we tend to think that we're, we're better than they are because we're not committing those same types of sin. We need to remember that we are recipients of God's grace and the boasting we make is only in the cross of Jesus Christ who has saved us and is making us new, not boasting in ourselves. Let's move on to the next principle. In order for us to not judge hypocritically, we must remember what Christ has done. Son of God, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory, who created all things and sustains all things, humbled himself, entering into his own creation, took on human flesh. Think of it like this. We as humans emptying ourselves to be an ant living, around, living among an ant community and times that by a million, and that's what Jesus did. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died a brutal death on the cross, all because he came to seek and save the lost. See, Christ took our place and was our substitute for sin, ultimately died for sinners like you and me. And here is how this is relevant to the point I'm making. Nothing shatters our pride and our self-righteousness more than when we focus and meditate on the cross. Church, just try to imagine yourself judging hypocritically when you are focusing on the cross, you're seeing the brutal death that Christ died for you. You're, you're hearing in agony the screams that he is making. And you're realizing that it was all your sin, all our sin that put him there on the first place. Yes, it was the person who has wronged you, who put him there, but the cross of Christ was just as much intended for you as it was for those who offended you and sinned against you. At no point in your walk in maturity with Christ do you need the cross of Christ more or less than others. So the next time you're tempted to address the speck in your brother's or sister's eyes, remember that Christ died for the both of you. Let's move on to the next principle. In order for us to not judge hypocritically, we must remember how God sees others. This last week, uh, you may have noticed we were gone. I'm assuming you noticed Rochelle was gone. You probably didn't notice me. But we were up in Fresno uh, and visiting family and doing some work-related stuff. And it had been a, a tough 
few days for me. And uh, I remember Rochelle and I were having our, our lunch date, and uh, I was, it was not very Christ-like in this moment, and I was just frustrated, and I gave full vent to someone up there, and I just spoke what was on my mind, and like nothing but just death came out of my heart. It was gross. But yet, the things that I was saying were true, and Rochelle, whom you all know is, is more Christ-like than I am, responds by saying, well, Dan, you need to remember that they are forgiven and loved by God. And that took the breath right out of me. I don't know if you tend to struggle with these things, but I, I tend to think that God is, is just as angry and upset with these people who have sinned against me as, as I am. Yet the reality is, though God is grieved with their sin, if they are in Christ, which this person is, that does not change how God sees them as his own children. Now, if they are unbelievers, we need to remember that they are still created in God's image. And these are people whom God desires for them to be saved. Now, when someone is struggling with sin, you are tempted towards self-righteousness and hypocritical judging. You're tempted to think that you are more righteous, more forgiven, more loved by God. That's simply not true. Christ is not just your personal Savior. He laid his life down for the church, all those who believe in him. When we remember this truth, this enables us to start to see that brother and sister in Christ the way God sees them. Church, when we understand truly who we are, remember what Christ has done for us, and remember how God sees others. This is when we are able to remove the plank in our own eyes to be able to properly confront the speck or the sin in others' eyes. Now, before we move on to the how of addressing the speck, the sin in others, I want to quickly clarify which sort of sin we should confront. Because we're not going to confront every type of sin that we ever see because this, this church is going to be chaos if that's the case, right? We're going to confront these potential sins. Number one, we should confront notorious sins that could damage the Lord's reputation. What I'm thinking here, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing his letter to the church of Corinth, and this church just had all sorts of problems. One of them being is that they had a member in the church who was having sexual relations with their mother-in-law. And yet the church was just fine with it. They were tolerant of it. And Paul is losing his mind. He says, throw out that person from the church so that the Lord's reputation is not damaged. Throw him out so that hopefully he comes to his senses and repents and comes back into the church. So this should be obvious. We're going to confront notorious sins, infidelity, or any public sins that could damage reputation of Pillar Church of Oceanside and ultimately Christ's bride, his church. Number two, we should confront sin which could endanger the unity of the church. If you've been around Pillar Church for a few months or have attended one of our group life membership meetings, we know that we take the sin of gossip very seriously. As you look around, we're not a mega church. We have a smaller church, and that's great. We love it that way. But if the sin of gossip runs rampant, nothing can split this church faster than that. 
And that's why we take the sin of gossip dead seriously. We will confront it with love, grace, and truth. Again, these are sins that can destroy the unity of the church. And this is not an exhaustive examples by any means, all right? Number three, we should confront sin which could ruin our brother or sister. Example I can think of spending a few years at ministry up at Camp Pendleton is we see a younger brother or sister in Christ who's coming to our church and they are dating an unbeliever and want to get engaged and married. This is a potential sin that could throw off their relationship with Christ and potentially ruin their lives. We want to confront them in love with that. Unfortunately, I've lost track of how many times I've seen that happen. Last, we should confront sins which affect your relationship with your brother or sister. Matthew Chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, lays out the steps in confronting the sin of those who have sinned against us. If your brother, this is Jesus speaking, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Another word for an unbeliever. Jesus is saying, hey, if someone sins against you, go to them and confront them and talk to them about it. If they're still unrepentant, take along two or three with you. Witness that sin. Preferably, let's start taking around a deacon or an elder to be part of this process. Then if that doesn't happen, we're going to, take, we're going to get the church involved. And praise God, it almost never goes beyond step one or two. But these are the steps laid out nonetheless. Okay, so now we've gone over to how to remove the plank in our own eyes and which sins to confront. I want to end by going over how we are to confront these sins. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 gives us a great litmus test to see whether we are appropriately judging and confronting sin. Paul says... Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So from these verses, we show us that first we should confront sin with a posture of gentleness. Brothers, sisters, sinning, we're not going to shout it over them. We're not going to hold signs to them. No, we're going to confront them in person in, that's with a tone that's, that's not going to aggravate the situation. Okay, and I, and I say in person because confronting people via text message or email is never a good idea. I learned that lesson a hard way a few years ago. The second, these verses show us that we need to confront sin with a posture of humility. It says, keep watch over yourself lest you be tempted. Again, we are, these verses are acknowledging that while we are still confronting sin, we are remembering who we are. We are sinners. We're in desperate need of the cross and we know what we are even capable of. 
and we're remembering what Christ has done for us. And so when we confront sin, we're, we're doing it through the lens of deep humility. Number three, our motive in confronting sin should always be out of love. Before you think about confronting someone in their sin, stop and pause and think about what do I desire in this situation? Do you desire to embarrass or accuse that person or do you desire to see that person repent and be restored? A motive of love always seeks to correct for the purpose of restoration. All right, church, I know I, I blew through that. Uh, how are we doing in this area? I know I, I had to preach this to myself earlier this week in repentance. Perhaps the Spirit is convicting you of where you're falling short and, and maybe where you're inappropriately judging your, your spouse or a family member or even a church member. As we roll into communion this morning, remember, church, who you are, what Christ has done, and how God sees others, even those who have sinned against you. God's word tells us to take communion rightly. So before we take the elements this morning, really ponder and ask the Lord to reveal your sin in this area. Confess that, agree with the Lord about that, and turn and ask the Lord to change you. And be encouraged, church. The Lord is in the business of changing us. And he is in the business of changing our relationships for his glory. To take heart. Let's pray this morning. Father, we need your grace. We need your grace. We need your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would Help us see the giant logs, the giant trunks coming out of our own eyes, God. That we would be able to meditate, Lord, on what you have done for us and, and who we truly are and how you see others, God. That we can be able to take the speck out of our brother's and sister's eye. Pray for your grace in that. In Jesus' name, amen.